Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to One Life Community Church. My name is Rich, and I'm one of the co-lead pastors here. It is um, an absolute joy, uh, privilege, and honor to be with you all this morning. It's been fantastic to participate in worship with you, and uh, very thankful for you being here this morning. Um, As we begin, I want to point out to you in your bulletin, in the inside right, there's a blank space there, and that is designed for you to use for jotting down notes, questions, thoughts, comments, doodling, whatever you need to do to process this morning's teaching, uh, please take advantage of that. And also, you should have uh, found yourself uh, with a little half sheet of paper that has some information on it we'll get to in a little bit. Um, If you didn't get one, uh, find someone next to you that has one, and you can share, and that would be great. Today we are in week seven of our sermon series um, in this letter called Second Corinthians, and if you've missed any of them, I highly recommend you going back to listen to them. I, there's no way I can recap everything we've covered. There's so much goodness in it, uh, you really need to go back and listen to it. Today, though, as we start, it is important for us to be reminded of some context. Second Corinthians is a letter that's really like no other in the New Testament. It's intensely personal. Uh, showing a full range of emotion from anguish and anger to uh, enthusiasm and confidence, highlighting for us the very intimate, um, raw, sacred, honest, messy, relational dynamic that is the church and its people. And the Corinthians were this community that were geared up on being the best, being specialized, driven by works, one-upping one another, and making that very public. People of all types of backgrounds, beliefs, and ethnicities came to Corinth because it was kind of like a new startup town, and people wanted to go there seeking a new start on life. And the culture and lifestyle of that time was very similar to ours right now here in the Pacific Northwest. Now, the relationship between the Corinthian Christians and Paul, their founding pastor and author of this letter, was strained to say the least. At one point, Paul wrote them, what is known by some commentaries as the severe letter. And that apparently was quite honest and quite harsh, challenging much of their ways of living life. Paul sent that to them uh, through Titus in the hopes that it would bring some change of heart amongst the antagonists in Corinth, but the problems instead grew. They did not receive this letter very well, and as a result, they opposed Paul's authority. They said he had inconsistencies. They questioned his motives along with his credentials. And a lot of us, if we're honest, we do that with Paul as well. Whenever we read stuff from him, oftentimes we get frustrated because we don't like his delivery. We sometimes find what seems to be inconsistency, or we just don't like how cocky he sounds. He kind of has an attitude. And if we're really being honest, we really just don't like being told the way we're living probably isn't the right way. We like to live the way we've chosen to live, and being challenged in that, we tend to push away. So Paul is writing this letter as a personal defense on their attack of his leadership with the hopes of resolving and seeing full reconciliation with the people that he loves. And this unresolved conflict that is with this church in Corinth made Paul very restless. He's waiting to hear back from them, and it takes a long time. But when Titus finally arrives back to Paul, he brings good news from Corinth. Paul's severe letter had, in fact, proven to be both hard and beneficial. 
The believers in Corinth who had caused so much of this sorrow were truly grieved about this rupture in the relationship that they had with Paul, and their sorrow had led to repentance, which is what Greg looked at last week. And so over these last six weeks, what we've seen is just this emotional roller coaster of content over and over again. We've seen Paul is, in fact, a very real, imperfect, and messy person just like all of us. But we've also seen that he has so much to teach us about being the people of God, what it means to be followers and ambassadors of Christ, and how we see and treat others in our day-to-day. And today, uh, I think we're going to see some more of the same as we dive further into this letter. Um, But before we do anything more, let's pray. Father, Son, Spirit, as this room is uh, filled with light, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would fill this place. Help us to hear from you. Help us to respond from you. Help us to experience the freedom that it is in knowing you. Help us to experience the grace that is ours to experience through you. And help us to know what that means, what that should look like in our day-to-day life. And pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So today, uh, we're not looking at one, but two chapters uh, in our book. And unlike some of the other sections we've looked at, this one, wonderfully in two sections, is pretty interconnected topic-wise. Today we're going to be discussing grace and generosity and how it displays the glory of the gospel of Jesus in our everyday life. So if you have your Bible, if you could open it to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, starting with verse 1, that would be fantastic. If you don't, no worries, the text will be displayed behind me. And if you have that sheet of paper, the text that we're going to be looking at is on there as well. But before we look at the text, I have a couple other notes of context that we need to know. First... We need to note that originally, at Paul's encouragement, the Corinthians had begun a collection, if you will, of a special offering for the poor in Jerusalem. And you can find this back in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Sadly, because the Corinthians had this falling out with Paul, this special offering process had been put to a halt. However, now with the return of Titus and this good news of the Corinthians' repentance, Paul reasserts this call to give, to contribute generously to this poverty-stricken church in Jerusalem. Now, the reason why we need to know this ahead of time is because when we start to look at this, it's going to seem very out of place if we don't remember it. We'll be wondering what's going on. But to be clear, this is very much context that's going on. Now that the relationship between them has been restored, the movement of the Spirit can now be jump-started again, and that's exactly what Paul is hoping to do. The second thing we need to be reminded of is that much of Paul's letter is showing what a transformed life of a follower of Jesus looks like. He's teaching them, he's teaching us how in Christ we are new creations. And as a result, we don't see things from a worldly perspective anymore. Because of the good news of Jesus, we no longer go about our day-to-day life the same way we used to. We don't treat people the same way. It's no longer about pushing to be better than everyone else and being really public about that. No, the call is to love God with all of who we are and all that we have and to love our neighbor as ourself. The scriptures describe it this way. We have new eyes. We have new perspective. And now we see everything as God sees everything. And we're called to live this out in all of our relationships as Christ's ambassadors, 
as evidence or proof that we're sincere in following Jesus and his example. The reason this is important, because today as we look at this text, we're going to see the way God's grace, as seen in the perfect example of Christ, changes the way we see and treat the poor and those in need. We will be challenged in how we see our finances and really everything we've been given, and we will see the core motivation that should be behind all of our actions. So with that, we're going to look at the text, and we're going to have it read today from Jessica, and this is going to be all of chapter 8 and all of chapter 9, so sit back and relax. You can follow along or read on your piece of paper as we look at these two chapters. Jessica, take it away. Now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able, and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord, and then by the will of God also to us. So we urged Titus, just as he had earlier made a just as he had earlier made a beginning to also to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part but since you excel in everything in faith in speech in knowledge in complete earnestness and in the love we have kindled in you see that you also excel in this grace of giving i am not commanding you but i want to testify the sincere i want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others for you know the grace of our lord jesus christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. And here is my judgment about what is best for you in this matter. Last year, you were the first, not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Now finish the work, so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need, so that in turn your plenty will supply what you need. The goal is equality. As it is written, the one who gathered much did not have much have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. Thanks be to God, who put into the heart of Titus the same concern I have for you. For Titus not only welcomed your appeal, but he is coming to you with much enthusiasm and on his own initiative, and we are sending along with him the brother who is praised by all the churches for his service to the gospel. What is more, he has chosen by the churches to accompany us as we carry the offering, which we administer, in order to honor the Lord himself and to show our eagerness to help. We want to avoid any criticism of the way we administer this liberal gift, for we are taking pains to do what is right, not only in the eyes of the Lord, but also in the eyes of man. In addition, we are sending with them our brother, who has often proved to us in many ways that he is zealous, and now even more so because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he is my partner and co-worker among you. As for our brothers, they are representatives of the church and in honor to Christ. Therefore, show these men the proof of your love and the reason for our pride in you, so that the churches can see it. 
There is no need for me to write to you about this service to the Lord's people, for I know your eagerness to help, and I have been boasting about it to the Macedonians, telling them that since last year you in Achaia were ready to give, and your enthusiasm was stirred most, has stirred most of them to action. But I am sending the brothers in order that our boasting about you in this matter should not prove hollow, but that you may be ready, as I said you would be. For if any Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to say anything about you, would be ashamed of having been so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to visit you in advance and finish the arrangements for the generous gift you had promised. Then it will be ready as a generous gift, not as one grudgingly given. Remember this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is, also, and God is able to bless you abundantly, so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work." As it is written, they have freely scattered their gifts to their poor, their righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion, and through us your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you have proved yourselves, others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given you. Thanks be to God for this indescribable gift. Awesome. Thank you, Jessica. That's a lot to read. You all took notes, and you're all ready. Two chapters. Uh, If you want, you can hold on to that piece of paper to look through the text. What I find is really helpful is on the other side, there's an outline, which we're going to get to in a sec. But I want you to see that Paul begins this chapter with an appeal informing the Corinthians how the grace of God has been given to the churches in Macedonia. And this word grace is a key word that appears ten times throughout these two chapters with differing nuances. Here in particular in this section, it's referring to human generosity, which Paul understands to be something given to us by God. Now this word grace, by biblical definition, is God's unconditional, unending compassion and love towards us, not based on anything we have done. So when the people are spontaneously generous toward others in any form, Paul takes it as clear evidence or proof that God's grace is working in and through them. Now, as you can imagine, having heard this whole text read, we're not going to cover everything in these two chapters. But I think as we look at this um, outline that's on your piece of paper, it's going to help us get the overall flow and movement so we can focus on the things that we really need to hear today. So if you haven't pulled that out, please do so. Um, as you look at that outline, you're going to see something. There's three major sections, two in chapter eight, one in chapter nine. And the first section of chapter eight is all about finishing this collection for the poor that the Corinthians had already begun. Paul gives this very powerful example of the Macedonian churches who in the midst of extreme poverty and trial displayed this astonishing 
picture of the grace of God in the form of generosity. Even in the midst of having almost nothing, by the grace of God, they gave so much that Paul is shocked. He's like, wait a minute, you can't do this. They literally gave beyond what they were able, and they were urgently pleading for the privilege of sharing in this ministry to the Lord's people, even in this season of utter lack. The picture is of a people who, according to the world, had absolutely nothing, but according to God, had everything they needed. They had experienced the very grace of God, and as a result, they were eagerly looking for the opportunity to share that grace in the form of generosity. And so this story is a story of generosity that in, for them is seen as a way of kind of reenacting the grace that was shown to them in Jesus in the form of generosity. And so Paul uses that example and says, you faithful Corinthians, you faithful one-lifers, all of you who have experienced the grace of God, continue to excel in giving grace. Excel at showing the grace of God to everyone, everywhere, all the time. And I want you to notice, Paul never actually speaks of money in these two chapters. And in no way is this about tithing. This is not even all about money. This is about being generous in all ways with all things. And Paul describes this to us as our ministry. And that word ministry had technical meaning for those in Judaism uh, that was around this idea of supporting the poor. But for Paul, however, this ministry is far more than simply delivering aid to the poor. It had major theological consequences, and it was something that he was prepared to risk his life for to carry out at all times. So not surprisingly, everyday language, especially business language, was hardly adequate to describe what he's talking about. So Paul uses this theological language to describe what this looks like lived out. And so you can see these powerful descriptions of what is to be birthed in us as a result of God's grace. This is what our ministry in Christ looks like. So that's your outline in this first section, but this is what this looks like. These words are all used throughout chapter 8 and 9 to describe this ministry. Grace, privilege, partnership, sharing, ministry, earnestness, love, willingness, generosity, abundance, liberal gifting, undertaking, blessing, generous gifts, good work, the yield of your righteousness, service. These are the things that are supposed to be birthed in us in Christ as our ministry. And what Paul is doing in all of this is he's creating a new meaning for the word partnership or fellowship, which we're going to get to in a little bit. But what Paul does here is he gives us an example to the Corinthians, and he says, now you complete your act of grace. He then gives them the best example of grace, looking at Jesus, his incarnational life, his death and resurrection for all humanity. He says, everything Christ did for all humanity was done with a sincere desire, love, and willingness to sacrifice it all. And it was not out of coercion. It was not out of pressure or manipulation. Christ's work on the cross was the ultimate example of love for God expressed in love for the other, for everyone, no matter age, ethnicity, skin color, financial situation, political stance, gender, you name it, past, present, future. Amen. That's, that's our example. 
Paul makes it absolutely clear what the goal of all this generous lifestyle is all about. He says this in chapter 8, verse, or chapter eight he, he quotes this from uh, the section. It says this, our desire, oops, sorry, wrong, t- one, one, here we go. Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need, so that in turn, their plenty will supply what you need. The goal is equality. As it is written, the one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. So what's the goal? He says it's equality. The ultimate example of God's grace is seen in the work of Jesus' death and resurrection for all humanity is equality. In other words, the work of Christ, the picture of grace and generosity perfectly displayed in Christ is the great equalizer. This is why money is such a hard topic for people to talk about. Because everything about our culture and the Corinthian culture that was being talked about here says money, having more, having possessions, having wealth, you name it, is clearly done so in a way to show the haves and the have-nots. Literally everything we have in some way does this. Oh, you own a boat? I, I don't own one of those. Oh, you have a job? I don't. Oh, your job pays how much? Mine's not nearly the same. You have a degree, you have food to eat, you have family around, you have cable TV, you have hair, you have significant other, you have, you have, you have. You get the picture, right? You see, everything we have, according to our world, is not only something we have, it also creates an us versus them mentality of comparison. It divides And it also comes with this lie that you are the one responsible for acquiring whatever it is that you have. This is why scripture says it's so hard for the wealthy to enter into the kingdom of God. Because the more you have, the more entrenched you are with the have and have not mentality, the more you think you have done all the hard work of acquiring all that you have. And Paul says, no. Everything, literally everything, even your very breath is a gift of grace from God. God is the one responsible for lavishing, for gifting his grace so generously upon all humanity, and it is by experiencing that, accepting this grace at all times, at every moment, that we are moved to share, to give that grace to others all the time. Paul says the principle undergirding this whole giving project that he's talking to the Corinthians about is one of equal equity. It relates to this idea of justice and fairness for all. And to be clear, Paul does not write so that there might be equality as it's translated in your NIV. Literally what the language is is that it says out of equity. So what What's happening, Paul is not saying that the purpose of their giving is to create equality, but that it should be the ground for their generous giving. In other words, we aren't creating equality in our sharing of anything. We are sharing from the understanding that we are all equal as a result of the grace of God. It's very different. And Paul uses an example in Exodus To help illustrate this, he says, The Israelites did as they were told. Some gathered much, some little. And when they were 
measured it by the omer, the one who gathered much didn't have too much. And the one who gathered little didn't have too little. Everyone had gathered just as much as they needed. Everyone had gathered just as much as they needed. In a sense, this divine principle is that no one has a surplus and no one has a shortage and everyone has exactly what they need. And in the Old Testament, whereas this is being quoted, this was enforced by God in the time of the wilderness in Exodus. But now, for us, for the Corinthians, this is absolutely voluntary and dependent on the working of God's grace through the Holy Spirit in the hearts of Christ followers. And what's really crazy is that's not even all of what Paul's getting at. There's far more to it because this is not just about material stuff. It's about spiritual side of things as well. Paul builds on this divine principle of sharing of various material gifts and says it's also a sign of spiritual equity. Paul sees this project as the outworking of an even greater divine principle, which is creating a worldwide fellowship or partnership with all people who are in Christ. The Corinthians and these poverty-stricken Jews are now interconnected to one another through the work of Christ and have equal access to God's grace. Remember, there's a long history of conflict over the acceptance of the uncircumcised Gentile Christians like the Corinthians with the more traditional, law-observant Jewish Christians. And so the problem was with this picture is this money that was going to be given was Gentile money coming from the Corinthians to these Jews. So if the Jewish Christians accept this tangible sign of grace, love, and indebtedness from Gentile Christians, then they have, in effect accepted them as their brothers and sisters in Christ and fellow heirs of the promises of God. And so this collection then shows how the Christian faith overcomes the deepest racial barriers that formerly separated the Jews and the Gentiles. It's this picture of God's grace in all kinds of action. You see, Paul wants to do far more than just send some relief. He wants to establish unity between the Jewish Christian Jerusalem church and the Gentile churches that he helped found. And he longs for all Christians to understand that since we all belong to Christ, we all have a relationship in Christ, we all belong together. And so this collection is literally an outpouring of what Paul's describing as a ministry of reconciliation to bring a end to the hostility between Jew and Gentile and to break down all the dividing walls. It is powerful. And he says the church will then know the unity of the sign of the Spirit in the bond of peace, which Paul describes perfectly in Ephesians chapter 4 when he says this, there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Now, that's just the first section. The second section of our outline is all about how this is going to be collected, how this is going to be distributed, and who's supposed to do that. 
and it discusses Titus and these two others who are being sent to help make all of this happen. We're not going to go into all the details, but in summary, Paul gives this information and these details to avoid shame, to avoid inappropriate handling of the gifts. He's being businesslike to ensure that everything is dealt with in a way that brings glory to God, blessing to those in need, and blessing to those who are being generous. Which totally makes sense because now we understand this is a big deal with major implications for the gospel of Jesus in the world. So let's do it right. That's the second section. Now our last section, though, outline details why the Corinthians and ultimately all followers of Jesus need to be generous givers. And again, Paul doesn't mention money here. And again, this is not about tithing. This is simply talking about being generous in our giving in every form, whether that's your money, with your words, with your, what you own. It doesn't matter. It's just about generous giving all around. And so this last section, Paul sketches out the benefits of generous giving, which can be summed up pretty simply this way. One, grace-filled, generous giving will grow us and mature us followers of Christ spiritually. That as we give, we will grow spiritually, which will then bring thanksgiving and praise to God. You want to find a way to worship God outside of Sunday? Be generous in your giving. Three, the recipients of that generosity will respond with prayer, specifically praise and intercessory prayer. When you show grace in your giving to someone, they are going to give praise. And they're going to look for opportunities to pray in response to you. Because you blessed them. And finally, it will advance the well-being and unity of the global Christian community. The picture of the family of God in Christ grows as we share and are generous with everyone. Now, sadly, we don't have time to go into all the details, but I want us to see what Paul's getting at in this last section. Paul assumes in these last few verses that the most valuable thing about our finances or anything we've been blessed to have is that we can use whatever that is for what Paul refers to as every good work. Whatever it is that we have, that we would use it for every good work. And that phrase, every good work here, refers to any act of grace-motivated generosity. And he uses this this language, abounding in every good work. And that idea, abounding in every good work, comes when we are abounding in God's grace. And to be clear, every good work does not earn grace. However, grace that we've already received is what generates the good work. When we experience the grace of God, the outpouring of good work comes. And so finally, what Paul's doing is he's trying to teach the Corinthians about the value of money and all worldly possessions, and it differs significantly from the value that was attached to it in that culture and really pretty much every culture, ancient and modern. And he comes to some conclusions that he wants to challenge us with to how we see all these things, particularly for any community that's flooded with this idea of materialism, which is very much something we experience here in the Pacific Northwest. And so he sums up, this is how we should see our finances and anything we have in light of this experience of grace through Jesus. And he says this, one, 
that followers of Jesus should know contentment. This idea of having enough. And not just financially, but in every area of life. As followers of Jesus and experiencing the grace of God, we should know contentment. Second is that money is a commodity that should be used in the service of others, not something to display one's wealth publicly to gain honor or to bring others into one's orbit of power. This is absolutely the opposite of the way these people were living, and very much so us as well. Three, reward can only be expected from God, not from others, and giving to others in need brings spiritual blessing from God to all. So we don't do it because we expect something, but we get that if we do from God and God alone. Four, God gives the material wealth that we share with others, and consequently, God, not the giver, is the one who is to be blessed and thanked. That's important for us to understand. As we, we give, and someone says, wants to give it back to us, we say, no, 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 everything I have came to me from God. He's the one to be blessed and thanks. Five, sharing with other Christians is identified as joining in partnership with them, fellowship with them. And in no way should the givers assume that those receiving those gifts should become their social inferiors or obligated to return the favor. How often do we give with the idea or expectation that at some time we're going to return, get that back? And that's not what this picture is about. And it's not to say because we have something and they don't that we are better. In fact, it's creating a picture of fellowship and partnership and unity. And finally, Paul sums this up by saying, giving to others proves that one's confession of Christ as Lord is true. Now, this last one is important for us to touch on. And we've talked about this idea of... uh, works. And and we want to make sure we're clear that, again, as you experience God's grace, there's a work that's going to come out, and it's going to be shown in your generosity. And that's what he's getting at. We've all heard that saying, to be a, it's a blessing to be a blessing, right? We're blessed to be a blessing. And that's essentially what he's talking about here. Basically, what Paul is saying is that if you are enriched in any form or fashion, if you have anything that somebody else doesn't have. One, you need to know that it is given to you by God as a gift of grace. And two, it is given solely to give us every opportunity to be generous with others. That's a serious reframing. Anything you have that someone else doesn't have, it's given to you as a gift of grace, and it is given solely to give every opportunity to be generous with others. In other words, God is generous in giving to his people so that they may be generous in giving to others. And underlying this is this understanding that we do this with our money, with our possessions, with our time, with our everything, that this becomes, in a sense, a litmus test or living proof of our experience and relationship with Jesus and his grace. As we are feeling and experience him lavishing that grace upon us, the the outwardness of that is that we will do the same. 
If you've truly experienced the grace of God in your life, giving you literally everything at every moment of every day, including the breath that you breathe right now, then the evidence of that will come out in your day-to-day life in the way you share that same grace in the form of generosity with others. This grace of Jesus Christ transforms everything, including the way we see those in need and how we respond. And just to be clear, every single human being that you meet has needs. Every single person has needs. And so when we share the grace that we have experienced in the form of generosity, you're not only equalizing the haves and the have-nots, you're also showing something of the very heart of God, a heart that is all about unconditional love for all people at all times, which results in an abundance of praise. Now, we need to be aware of time, so I want us to kind of pause here. We've covered a lot. What I want to do as an exercise and application is ask you to just quietly ponder a couple questions. Unlike other weeks where we have you write down your answers, I don't even need you to write down your answers. I'm going to put a couple questions up here. You can close your eyes if you would like to think about them. If you want to jot down your thoughts, you're welcome to. But I want you to take a few minutes to um, reflect and meditate on a couple questions as a form of application. Um, and we're going to kind of just keep it quiet. You can think about these questions, and, uh, and then we'll continue on from there. So question number one, if you want to close your eyes, you can. The first thing I want you to think about as a form of application is what are some things that you're currently involved with right now that you know create division? What are some things you're involved with right now that you know create division? division. Just take a moment and think about that. It could be your stance on certain things. It could be the way you communicate about certain things. It could be a a relational dynamic that you have with someone or that's been broken that you've created lines of division on. What are some things that you're currently involved with that you know create division? And as you think about that, another question. How could you bridge barriers to create new partnerships, new fellowships with those who are seen as the other? For whatever reason, you have categories that you see as other. What could you do at bridging barriers to create new partnerships, new fellowships with those in your world that you see as the other? Another third question. How have you excelled in giving grace to others? How have you excelled in giving grace to others? There might be areas in your life where that's much easier for you to do. Where have you found yourself excelling at giving grace to others?
And lastly, I want you just to think about all the ways, literally all the ways God has shown grace to you. And as you think about all the ways God has showed grace to you, I want you to think about how can you share that with others? What does that look like for you to share the grace you've received and experienced in Jesus? How do you share that with others? I'm going to invite the worship team and the prayer team to come forward. And as they do, I I put those same four questions up here because I would like for you to still have a few moments to ponder them. The worship team is going to play a little bit of music and then eventually will invite us to all join together to sing. And I'm going to have the prayer team up here as well. If you find any reason whatsoever that you would like to pray, the prayer team will be here for you. But I'm going to close us in prayer. The worship team will give us some space to, again, ponder these questions and respond however you would like. And then we'll, we'll join in worship together as we close. But let me close us in our own time of prayer. Father, Son, Spirit, we thank you for the grace you have given to us in every form. You have set the example of what reconciliation looks like. And so, God, as men and women who are naturally prone to creating us and them, Dynamics. Help us to be men and women who have experienced your grace, that invite others in, who develop partnerships and fellowships for your glory, who, as an experience of your grace, we are outpourers of that grace as well in the way we live with people. And God, help us to have a vision of what that looks like, not just with our finances, but with our time with what we do in our lives, how we share whatever it is, both our stories and our experiences, our finances, our possessions, our our passions, our desires, you name it, God, all the things you've blessed us with, help us to know what that looks like to be men and women who excel at giving grace to others. And Jesus, if there's things that we've done that have created division, help us to know by your grace what we could do to remedy that. You are so good to us. Thank you for what you've done on the cross for us, Jesus. Thank you for uh, taking care of all the things that have separated us from you, that we would have a relationship with you, that we'd have new life. Help us to live in that new life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.